Make sure you're really identifying the right people and you're following up and making sure you're giving an audit trail for everything you do. Yeah, we see so little of that, right? We see people who are like, oh, I sent that CV 10 months ago, now they work there, I want my money. It's like, well, <laughs> did you actually do anything here? Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. This is your host, Mark Whitby. My special guest today is Barry Cullen. Barry is the founder and director of Intro Protect, which is a London-based law firm who are experts in backdoor hire and fee disputes. Barry has a really unique and interesting background in that prior to training as a solicitor, Barry started his career as a recruiter. You can learn more about Barry's company at introprotect.com. Barry, welcome. Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. So we've spoken a, a few times now, and uh, I remember the very first time we spoke, you shared your story with me and how you came to be doing what you do. Would you mind sharing that story? Because I think that'd be a great starting point. Yeah, sure. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a potted history of failures, uh, which, which led me to, to where we are now. Uh, gosh, how to describe it. So um, I was destined to be an engineer. That was my life plan um, until I arrived at university uh, to start an engineering degree and realized my maths was terrible uh, and nowhere near good enough to become an engineer. Uh, so I think I lasted about six weeks at uni uh, and then uh, dropped out of that and then found myself in a recruitment building, a uh, recruitment agency. This is Huxley Associates back in sort of like mid-late 90s. Uh, I was the photocopy boy. Uh, so those that are old enough uh, will know that mail shops, uh, they didn't always work at the click of a button. Uh, you actually had to send the CVs out, right? So my Right, was, in the mail. Like you'd yeah, have yeah, to yeah, yeah, print 100%. it out yeah. and then uh, put it in, a, in an envelope or hopefully you had an, uh, admin support to do that for you, but you'd have a stack of mail going out every day. Yeah, but you know the, the admin support? That was yeah. me. Right? Oh, that okay. Was me. That was me. So I was the guy. I was the guy that would photocopy the CVs, stuff them in envelopes, uh, and if you bought me a couple of pints after work on a Friday, then I might agree to run run around the city for you, hand delivering CVs to hiring managers. Uh, you know, just you know, because ultimately it was like you could put it in the post and it gets there the next day, or you could put it on a fax machine and it gets it there at some point, or you can basically bribe Barry uh, with beer and he'll hand deliver it and get it there before any other recruiter is able to get it to them. That's uh, hilarious. That's how you know, recruitment we, was done, right? Yeah, I mean, well, we used to double up. We'd fax it because it was yep. quick, but we always posted the hard copy of the CV as well. Just to make sure, because you never, you know, the fax machine might not necessarily get to the intended recipient. So you wanted to just cover both bases. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, but we, so like, sorry, this is like slight uh, tangent, but do you remember, <laughs> like, people talk about mapping out clients, right? Uh, but I don't think they have any idea what that actually used to represent. It used to literally be get an A1 piece of paper and draw the plan to their office and where their desks were and write the names of the individuals in so you could figure out who everybody was. So people used to like show me one of those and I'd have to memorize where the desk of this particular hiring manager was and I'd have to sort of like persuade my way past security at the building and hand deliver this CV to the hiring manager. I literally say you know, something like, you know, Brian, if you don't phone the consultant today, this guy will be gone tomorrow. Right, and then just disappear. <laughs> and it worked, right? It worked. It brought that sort of immediacy and urgency to, to recruitment. 
But, but that, that, as I said, that's a tangent, right? So uh, I was a photocopy boy. I, I had no idea what was going on in recruitment. I had hair down to here. Um, I, I, I was a, a fairly scruffy so-and-so at the time. Uh, and one day, it's like day five, day six of my recruitment career, somebody walked through the uh, photocopy room and told me to get a haircut, uh, which led to a, a heated conversation uh, around uh, the length of my hair. Uh, and ultimately led to me saying that there were lots of people with longer hair than me in the office and starting to name all the women. Uh, and then the, the director uh, turned around and said, like, you're entirely wrong, but I like the way you argue. Uh, so get yourself out on the sales floor and find a consultant to go and resource for. Uh, and the rest, as they say, was history, right? Uh, so I was a resourcer at Huxley's for about 10 months or so. Um, uh, then a couple of my managers left uh, to, to, to take over running an agency, so I got the call, we'll make you 360. Uh, and I was a dot-com, uh, C++ and Java contract recruiter for a few years. Uh, dot-com bubble burst. Uh, so overnight, I became a specialist year 2K testing contract recruiter. Standard <laughs> form. Uh, but then the, the, the real problem came about, right? First of January 2000, the planes didn't fall out of the sky. The lights all turned on and the computers all still worked. So that market died as well. Uh, it's funny. I... IT recruiters in the late 90s made so much money over Y2K, right? And yeah. uh, that, was the, that was the big thing that everyone was working on. And, and people who really weren't very good were able to make a lot of money. Me? <laughs> I'm not, I'm not talking me? about you. No, you're 100% talking about me, right? So I, I floated through .com. I floated through year 2K. When those markets both died and overnight, my runner book just disappeared, uh, literally just disappeared. I was like, uh, this job's actually really quite difficult uh, and I'm not very good at it uh, without a buoyant market to carry me. Uh, so I had to go and get what my mum calls a proper job. Uh, so that's when I went to university properly to do a law degree. And then when I was at university, I ran my own sort of temping legal agency wait, alongside wait, do, being at uni. Pause for a second here, Barry. Okay, yeah. so how old were you when you in your first recruiting experience then? Uh, I would have been like 18, 19. Wow. Okay. So it's funny because not many people these days literally start in the mail room or the, or the photocopy room and work their way up. That's like, you know, proper old school. But then you decided to go back to university and finish this time. Why law? Uh, because um, <laughs> uh, computer personnel, which is where I was at the time, was on Kingsway. Uh, Kingsway's right next to the sort of Inns of Court and the, the Royal Courts of Justice. And as a result, a lot of the bars that we went to were full of lawyers. Uh, and I was having conversations with lawyers. And I came to realize, actually, being a litigator, which is what I do, right, is basically recruitment. Yeah, because I'm <laughs> Wait a sec. Okay, explain that. It is, it is, right? Because, right, so I, I've, if you're a recruiter, you've got a candidate, right? Yeah. yeah? If you're a litigator, you've got a case. Right, so they're 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 fairly similar things, right? I'm having to convince the other side. No matter how good my case is, I've got to convince the other side that my case is better than theirs. Okay. Yeah. So the recruiter, even if their candidate's not necessarily the best candidate for the job, it's the can it's the can it's the best candidate they have for the job. So they have to convince the client that this is the best person for them. Yeah. So that's so that's very similar. If I, you know. A recruiter might convince a hiring manager and then has to go up to a program director or has to go on to HR or something else. And, and then they've got to convince them. Right? I, if I can't convince the other side, I've then got to convince a judge that my case is better than the other guy's case you know, or the other girl's case. right? Um, so there's, very, there's a lot of similarities there. But on the other side, it's similar too, right? Because 
I might have to manage expectations of a client. You know, so my recruiter client might be expecting like 50 grand out of a case. And I might be having to manage their expectations. Say, look, if we get you north of 35, that's a good outcome. Yeah. So, and then if an offer's coming in, I might actually have to be, you know, having negotiations on both sides of the deal effectively. You know, so I might be saying to my client, look, I know you're owed 50 and we can fight the good fight for the next 18 months and we can probably get you 50, right? But there's risk in this, you know? Uh, so there's, you know, save the management time, get the cash quick. There's always some litigation risk. It might be worth taking a haircut in order to get it over the line and avoid all that risk. Similarly, you know, a recruiter candidate side is going to be saying to them, look, this might not be exactly what you wanted, but in this market and this time, it might be the best thing for you. You know, so you're, it's, a, it's an odd relationship, right? But it's a very similar relationship, uh, recruitment and law. Interesting. You're using a lot of the same skills, really. Well, I suppose you've got multiple stakeholders, you're uh, putting deals together, you're trying to influence people's perceptions yeah. and manage expectations and find compromises and so yeah okay i i'm with you i'm with yeah, you yeah yeah so there's so, there, so oddly there, there is a lot of similarities and that's why it came about i was like right okay, it okay. sounds like a cool job let's go do that and, and it's a bit like the good fellas right uh is it godfather when he says i thought i got out but they dragged me back in right <laughs> because i got out right to go and become a lawyer and then when i started my training contract which is like an apprenticeship for lawyers right when i started that within the first week because all of my mates from years of working recruitment were in recruitment the phone calls were starting to come in already. Like, oh, we've got this situation. We've got that situation. Can you help with this? Can you help with that? And like any good recruiter, I'm like a week into my training contract, right? So I know nothing about the law, right? But like any good recruiter, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We can do that. That's not a problem at all. <laughs> Let me help. And then as soon as the phone was out, it was run off to somebody else in another department. What is this? How do we do it? You know? Uh, and it sort of evolved from there, really. Um, you know, <laughs> so that's how it came about. No, wait a second. You mentioned something the first time around, and then I interrupted you, and then we missed it the second time around. You mentioned something about running, had, placing temporary lawyers while you were still in university or something. Yeah, so it wasn't was lawyers. It wasn't lawyers. It was oh, okay. uh, it was what we'd call a paralegal, right? So uh, I'm going to stretch the recruitment analogy now. Paralegals are resources where lawyers yeah. are consultants. Right, yeah? got so, it. So, so it's like you're not qualified yet but you're working within the law, right? Yeah. Um, so I realized, having come from a recruitment background, um, that I needed some experience, right? And that law was going to be massively difficult to get into. I'm not the brightest person in the world. I don't have great A-levels. My degree is also not the best, you know? Um, so I knew I had to get an edge on what were, frankly, going to be a lot of much brighter, much better pedigreed people than me. Um, so I realized I had to get experience, right? Uh, and... I'm a recruiter at heart, so getting experience wasn't going to be a problem. I had to just go and find firms and, and tell them to give me work. And that, that worked so well that I had so much work that I then realized, hang on a second, I can set an agency up here. So I set up an agency and effectively was temping out uh, other students into paralegal jobs. You know? <laughs> so, so I was able to cherry pick the best projects and the best jobs. And then the ones I either didn't have time to do or didn't want to do, the, the, the firm still needed people. Uh, so I effectively set up my own temping agency while I was at law school, while I was at university. Um, but then obviously when I then went to be a trainee, I couldn't do that anymore because, you know, <laughs> there's a, there's a, there's a potential conflict of interest there. Right. Uh, and also Plus just shed loads of hours. I think when you're a trainee solicitor, don't you get, it's like, you know, mega hours, isn't it? Yeah, it can be, yeah, it can be busy. It can be busy. Yeah. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to the day when that stops, to be honest with you. Right? <laughs> I don't think that's ever going to change. So, you what, what happened next? 
Uh, yeah, so so then I, I qualified as a solicitor and I started specializing more uh, on rec- rec- what I call recruitment law. It's not really, mm-hmm. there's no law of recruitment, right? But the law affecting recruitment agencies. Uh, and I was doing various, doing everything, right? So from uh, terms of business, through employment disputes, fee disputes, post-employment restraints. So I used to enforce a lot of restricted covenants and, and also on the other side, help people get out of them because uh, I was happy to do work for either side, um, you know, and, and doing all that sort of work. And then ultimately, uh, one of my clients um, was doing, uh, they were sending so much work to my firm uh, and I was, I was doing pretty much all of it. Uh, it came to the point where I was like, hang on a second, I should just come and work for you uh, as your in-house <laughs> lawyer. Uh, <laughs> so I went in-house uh, to uh, what was then Lawrence Harvey Group, uh, okay. which ultimately became LHI Group, uh, and I was their general counsel. Uh, so I joined them when there was like maybe 80 uh, people uh, in one office in London. And then by the time I left, uh, there were offices in, oh gosh, let me think, uh, uh, London, Paris, Munich, New York, uh, and Santa Monica. And they were in the process of opening in Geneva as well at that time. And, and since then, they've gone on even even more, right? Um, awesome. Yeah, but, but that was a part-time job um, because then I could run Intro Protect on the side. Yeah, so like ah. Intro Protect was a side hustle then. Uh, I was doing like three and a half days for LHI. I was doing one and a half days uh, working on Intro Protect. Uh, but then Intro Protect just started getting busier and busier and busier. Um, and I hired my first person. This is Allison. Uh, I hired Allison in July 2017. The mm-hmm. idea was hire Allison. She can be my paralegal and do loads of admin, which means I can have my life back. But the problem was it meant we could cope with more work. And as a result, more work came in. Of course. And so then we got too busy again. Um, so then uh, January 2018, uh, hired Joshua, uh, who's uh, you know one of our solicitors here. Um, again, the theory being great. Someone else can do a lot of that work. It frees me up. But then we got busier again. So ultimately, I left LHI uh, in the March, mid-March 2018 uh, to yes. do this full-time. And since then, yeah, uh, we're now... Awesome. Yeah, there's about 10 of us now. Uh, you wouldn't know it from the office today because, of course, social distancing and working from home. Um, but yeah, and we're just like growing and growing and growing constantly. Barry, this is a topic which I think every recruiter around the world is going to be interested in, which because we've all been burned, right? We've all worked hard, made a placement, uh, did a good job, and then... Um, either didn't get paid or the sneaky one where the, you know, you maybe send a, a, a CV and it doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't result in a hire or so you think. And then, you know, usually by accident, you discover that the, your candidate who you introduced is now working for the person, for the company that you referred them to. Um, and then of course they're not, necessarily eager to to pay your invoice in spite of the fact that you were legitimately the one to have you know without your involvement that placement would have never happened but um so so i think this topic is definitely going to perk people's ears up what impact has the pandemic had on this issue yeah sure so it's it's had a, a few different versions of an impact um, so for starters, uh, everybody went on a cash saving exercise. Uh, so end clients uh, were delaying payments or trying to find ways to not pay. Uh, so that had, a, had one version of an impact. 
Um, another version of an impact was recruiters, their work dropped off a cliff, uh, revenues dropped off a cliff. So they needed to recover their money fast. Uh, and as a result, we had a massive upswing in, in work, as you can imagine. Um, you know, commercially, that was great for us. Um, it, I've worked in recruitment 20 odd years, though. So, and it means all my mates work in recruitment. So I didn't enjoy the fact that we had that big upswing. Um, I would have rather got it through our own growth rather than a, a pandemic. But, you know, that was a massive impact. Um, there were some practical changes, uh, like our cousins over in Germany, um, they had to close their court system for a while uh, during this. Uh, in the UK, uh, we kept them open. Uh, we very quickly uh, moved over to te- more telephone hearings, more video hearings, you know, all that sort of side of things. Um, so there was a significant change there. Um, then also, um, there were some changes to the law. So uh, one, one process that people often go through in, in sort of debt uh, scenarios is, is a statutory demand followed by a winding up petition, so effectively forcing the end company into liquidation, closing them down for not paying their debts. Um, the government brought a new bit of law in uh, for during the pandemic to prevent winding up petitions being issued, just to stop creditors from being able to close companies. And that gave a lot of end clients a sort of feeling of, uh, of empowerment, where they're like, well, you can't close us. So you can't do anything about it, you know? Um, but they only, they, they didn't realize we've got a lot of other tools at our disposal, right? So it didn't, really slow us down uh, in relation to the recoveries of the money. I think the biggest issue, and we're not going we, to, we, this won't come out in the wash much yet, uh, it'll become apparent more further down the line, is I suspect um, consultants having, massive amounts of consultants having been furloughed, you know, and, and without notice, right, it was like we were working, then lockdown, and bam, everyone was gone, right? There would have been a lot of processes, so a lot of candidates who've recently been introduced or who were going through processes at that time, then the consultants have disappeared. Uh, I imagine a lot of agencies won't have picked up the management of those processes very well mm. or followed up the, the introductions of candidates very well. So I suspect, and look, my experience, Mark, and it's, it's a lot of my experience on this, most of these cases are not nefarious. The end client is not sitting there and going, hey, let's screw this guy over. Right? We get those, right? We get a few of those, right? But normally, it's because end clients aren't very good at recruiting, right? They don't have very good systems or they don't have very good management of the processes. So they often don't know where the candidate originally came to them from. Yeah. Like a really good example would be, you know, recruiter introduces candidate who then interviews the end client through recruiter, yeah, doesn't get the job. Yeah. A few weeks later, hiring manager spots the candidate on LinkedIn. It might turn up in their people you may know list. You know, the old bar mine off syndrome uh, and they'll connect with them. And then a few months later, a new job opens up at the client and they're like, oh, I remember a person. And then they go and find them on LinkedIn. And go, That's the person. Let's, let's speak to them. No realization at that point that, oh, it came through this recruiter. Therefore, we will have to lower fee. You know, so a lot of it's a lack of education, and understanding of their contractual obligations rather than, you know, scumbags trying to avoid fees. But don't get me so wrong. The scumbags do exist. So, what, I mean, r- Roughly, what percent are honest mistakes or or disorganization rather than you know someone's trying to backdoor the candidate intentionally? Now the the, the figures are going to be skewed with us, right? Because if it comes to us, it's going to be more likely that it's yeah. the nefarious ones, right? Right. right. Uh, because if it's the honest mistakes, when the honest mistakes are identified and a, and a sensible conversation had with a client, it normally gets resolved before it comes to us, right? Yes. So it's going to be skewed for us. But I would say even though it's skewed for us, 
if it's more than a third of our cases are intentional attempts to avoid payment, I'd be amazed. Okay. I'd be ab- wow, I'd be that's interesting. Amazed. So it's probably in, in the grand scheme of things, it's probably much less than that. I, you know, I reckon it, it, it's in the single percent. Really? Uh, you know, wow. Less, less than 10% is my instinct. It's, it's, it sometimes doesn't feel like that when you're the recruiter who's, you know, being, uh, hundred percent, but this is part of the problem, right? And this is something which I'm trying to educate recruiters on constantly. Yeah. And um, you can't just look at it through your own optics, draw your own conclusions, pick up the phone to a client and call them a thieving so-and-so, yeah. you know, if you do that, you know, you've, you've alienated the client. So you're not going to work with them again. Sorry. Um, you've made them entrench. Yeah, you've called them out as a liar and a thief, so they're going to be forced to defend themselves, right? Yeah. And it's the second you say, oh, and we're going to sue you, they're forced to go to lawyers or to their in-house legal team or whatever, you know? Right. Right. It's a sensible conversation, a relatively friendly inquiry, yeah, can normally lead to actually getting that little bit of information that you're missing, you know, and on a relatively friendly basis. But if you don't with it right, you know, clients can actually appreciate the approach and how it's dealt with, and it's a new touch point for you and the client. So you can actually, we see a lot of clients and recruiters doing more business together after mm. these sorts of situations rather than less. If it's handled correctly. Yeah. Let's dive into that because the three services that you promote on your website are prevent, detect, recover. Yeah. So I guess an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. What can recruiters and recruitment business owners do to prevent backdoor hires in the first place? Sure. So primarily it's about looking like you run a tight ship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So do good recruitment, right? That's that's 101, right? And so that looks like, you know, having your terms of business in place. Uh, having them well drafted. Yeah, because it's often that they're not, right? And um, making sure that terms are going over to clients. You know, mm-hmm. so if you've not got terms specifically and expressly agreed, making sure they're going over to clients, you know? Um making sure there's references to your terms. For example, this is a great one, in the header of the CV. Yeah, Because often clients say, well, I never read your terms. Whereas if they're opening a CV and the header of the CV is your logo plus a note to say, this introduction is made on the basis of our terms and conditions, which are available here with a handy little URL to the terms, it's much harder for them then to argue, oh yeah, we haven't actually done it, right? Yeah, So things like that are really important. Uh, so that's the starting point. But the next bit is, like I said, do good recruitment, right? So don't just send a CV out to 50,000 hiring managers and expect some of it to stick. Yeah? And if you are taking someone to market you know, on a spec basis and you're working with a candidate, make sure you're really identifying the right people and you're following up and making sure you're giving an audit trail for everything you do. Yeah? We see so little of that. Right? We see people who are like, oh, I sent that CV 10 months ago. Now they work there. I want my money. It's like, well, <laughs> did you actually do anything here? <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah, so that, that, that there for me is where the prevent piece comes in really well, right? Um, yeah, so that, that, that's the start of the 10, if you will. Can I ask a qu- uh, quick question on this? Uh, something I've always wondered is if you've sent the terms of business, but they have not been signed or acknowledged, but they have definitely been sent to the client, and in the terms it says, if you interview any of the candidates we represent, then you are you know, liable for the fee based on our terms, mm-hmm. but they don't actually officially sign it. Is that still valid? Yeah. So generally speaking, yes, that's fine. Right. And um, what it comes down to is a thing called sufficiency of notice. 
Okay. Right? So let's say, as an example, just to give you an extreme example on purpose, right? <clears throat> let's say your terms of business are printed in the I, yeah, the dot of the I of a word inside your email, right? So you have to get like a massive microscope to actually see the terms, right? That's not going to be sufficient motive, right? Whereas the, the other extreme of that is, you know, you send an email which has the terms attached and say, these are our terms of business. Yeah? This is the basis on which we're going to provide candidates to you. Yeah? And then the client says, send me the CVs. And then you're sending CVs and you're arranging interviews. You don't need a signature. Yeah? Okay. They're on sufficient notice. They've then acted in accordance with. So it's called deemed acceptance or acceptance by conduct. Right? Um, where there are lawyers involved, it's the gray areas where most of the arguments are. You know, um, And also perceptions, particularly for people that work in foreign jurisdictions. Um, you know, everybody here in England is generally fairly comfortable with the idea that if you've seen the terms and you've acted in accordance with them, then you've accepted them, right, generally speaking. But if you're in, like, Scandinavia, for example, like Denmark and places like that, their, cult, their commercial cultural habit is to sign contracts. And if you don't sign a contract, they don't believe that the contract applies. Yeah? So that can be a bit of a challenge when you've got the interplay between a UK agency and a, and a Danish end client. The Danish incline, and even their lawyers are coming into it on the basis of, well, we haven't signed the terms, therefore there is no right. agreement. And it's a re-education point for them then often. I mean, I guess my feeling is you're always safe for getting it signed because it's also a psychological commitment on behalf of the client. And, you know, just make sure there's no misunderstandings later because I've had, I can't tell you how many times clients come back and try and renegotiate the fee after mm-hmm. they've offered the candidate. and of course, I sent the terms, they read the terms, they went ahead and proceeded with the interview, but they didn't really study the terms. Yeah. They just went, in fact, they may not have even opened the attachment. They went, okay, terms, fine, let's go. And then when it comes time to make the offer, then they go through the terms. They've not actually looked at it and they go, 25%? No, 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 no. We're not going to pay 25 So. You know, I think there's there's definitely value in getting the, it, it signed, right? 100%, 100%. But we need to be alive to the commercial reality of how the world works, right? If, if you set up your agency on the basis of you're not allowed to work any jobs to any clients until you've got signed terms, yeah, you're not going to have many jobs to work. Yeah? Uh, and likewise, if you're trying to take a candidate to market rather than being job-driven, Mm-hmm. Now, if you're job driven, it's easier to get terms agreed in advance, right? Mm-hmm. But if you're candidate driven, that can be a lot more difficult, you know. Mm-hmm. And you could effectively be significantly reducing the amount of jobs you're able to work and the amount of clients you're able to work with because you have this insistence on terms. Yes. So it's about that balance, right? And, and back in back in the late '90s, so before I got into the law side of it, I remember people talking about compliance as being deal blockers. You know, so the contract team with the, the compliance team with the deal blockers, they were here to stop us doing business. And it's about getting that balance right. You know, it's really important, especially because it's, you know, look, it's sales business, right? Uh, if you put massively strong restrictions in place on a compliance perspective, your sales floor are going to find ways to work around it. They're going to find ways to game the system. And if they game the system, they're generally going to get it wrong, right? And as a result, you're going to end up losing fee rather than earning it. It's a balancing act, as with most yep. things. Yeah, I hear you. That makes sense. Since you're listening to this podcast, it tells me that you're someone who's interested in personal growth and business improvement. 
that's something we have in common. I really enjoy listening to podcasts, reading, and listening to business books, watching TED Talks. But by far the most important investment I've made in my own development has been working with a coach. It started back in 1999, 2000, when I was working as a recruiter. I hired a coach and he helped me to double my billings in 90 days. It was, it sounds corny, but it was really a life-changing experience. Since then, I've worked with various coaches almost continuously over the years, and it's made a massive difference to my own personal and business success. In fact, that first experience of working with a coach was the catalyst for me ultimately deciding that much as I loved recruitment, my true purpose was to become a coach and enable others to achieve their full potential. Fast forward to today, and I work with recruitment business owners to help them escape the feast and famine roller coaster and create consistent, predictable billings. If you'd like to know more, you can apply for a free strategy session at recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. So one of the strategies that uh, I've always used and that I teach is uh, candidate marketing. We call it MPC, Most Placeable Candidate. Mm -hmm. Now, it shouldn't be a blast indiscriminately, you know, a 50,000, you know, uh, contacts, as, as you said earlier, it should be very targeted. It should be thoughtful. And where you see there is a genuine, there's potential for a match between what the candidates experience and aspirations are and what, you know, the sort of people that these companies might be interested in. 100%. Um, but I see that as being possibly um, the most challenging uh, arena for getting your fee paid. Um, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Because, because the, the, the further down yeah. that recruitment process you get, the yeah. easier it is to prove that you should be paid the fee, right? Yeah. So, so if you happen to send a CV to a hiring manager and somebody in that company ultimately hires the person, yeah. you're, it's much harder to show that you should get paid, right? And that's yeah. obviously an issue. For my money, right? if you're working in a candidate-driven market and you want to bring a particular candidate to market, this is the approach I would always take in the past and the way I, this is what I recommend as well, is if they're worth working, they're worth working well, right? Yes. And what I mean by that is, you know, the, the narrow short list of clients, you know, yes. so these are the five to 10 clients that I am going to try and sell you into Mr. Candidate, Mrs. Candidate, mm -hmm. yeah? Right to represent from candidate in relation to those clients, confirmation that they've not been speaking to them, confirmation that nobody else has represented them to them. You know, so that traditional right to represent email, right? Getting that off the candidate, then approaching that very targeted shortlist. If you do want to spec them out to a wider market beyond that shortlist, if they're worth working, it's worth taking the time to craft a summary. You know, exactly. not here's the CV to 10,000 people. Exactly. But here's, a, here's a very brief summary of why this candidate is worth working, yeah? Not enough to identify who they are, yep. right? but enough to you know, wet the whistle, wet the appetite of the hiring manager. He's gonna be like, oh yeah, I like totally that, I right. like the sound of that, right? We should not be sending spec CVs, we should be sending a profile, which is yeah. essentially a summary, a teaser, with a few bullet points of the candidate's key achievements and the you know the selling points of the candidate. And if they're interested, then they come back and you have a conversation before. Exactly, and the, and the really nice thing about that as well, yeah, is if that summary is going out with your terms attached mm -hmm. and, the, and the hiring manager is then responding to you saying, yes, please, can you send me the CV? Yeah, your terms will probably have a provision in there that says requesting, requesting CVs from the agency is a deemed acceptance provision. 
So right. by, by, by doing that even, before they've even had the CV of you, they've accepted your terms. Awesome. Yeah? And that's Do- a really powerful thing. I, this is fun. I just want to pick your brains because these are issues which, um, you know, are so frustrating for recruiters. Another common one, you mentioned right to represent. Yeah. Probably the single most frustrating thing for a recruiter is you do the job properly. You take a brief from the client. You then go to the marketplace. You start targeting uh, suitable candidates. You approach them. You get a hold of them. You get them engaged in a conversation. You qualify them and make sure they're suitable for the for the client. You also then sell the opportunity, get them really excited about your client. And then, and only then are you presenting the CV or the resume. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And then sometimes your resume arrives in the client's email box and they come back to you and say, Oh, Mark, we've already got the CV. And you're like, really? I'm flabbergasted because the candidate is not aware that anyone else has sent. And you know, sometimes it's the candidate who's playing games yep. and sometimes it's genuinely, they have not authorized anybody else to represent them, but the recruiter's cutting corners, the competitor's cutting corners, and they've just fired the CV across and figured, well, I want to be the first on the scene because, and this is, unfortunately, the clients often set things up this way that they tell you they want a thorough process, but then they award the agency who's the fastest by giving them the fee, mm-hmm. which is incredibly frustrating if you do the job properly and you lose out to, you know, the the guys who are not, you know, who, who are, are, are more shady. And so what can we do in this situation uh, to, in terms of prevention? So multi, what we call multi-source or multi-agency disputes, yeah. they're, they're always the most fractious. Um, you know, particularly multi-agency, you know, so if you've got two recruiters both introducing the same candidate, you know, there's that age-old argument, right? Who gets paid? The person with the first CV over or the person that caused the engagement to happen? Yes. Yeah, that's what I, I, I have for two answers. I, I, it depends how much beer I've had as to which one I give. <laughs> uh, if, I, if, I've had a few, if I've had a few beers, then the answer, the answer to the question is, well, it depends. Which one's my client? Right, uh, because I'm going to fight for my client, right? Um, but then what it then comes down to often, and this is a misunderstanding of a lot of people within the recruitment industry, is that within agency law, uh, um, often, not always, right? Uh, often the courts will infer into the terms an additional requirement, so almost like they've written additional words into the contract, yeah, that says the introduction has to be the effective cause of the engagement for the fee to be triggered, right? Mm-hmm. And that effective cause principle, yeah, it's agency law, it's not just recruitment, estate agents have to deal with it, insurance brokers have to deal with it. You know, that, that's a really tried and tested uh, principle within, within English law. Um, and it's one that often people don't really understand. Um, you know, and, and also it's unhelpful, I think, uh, I can't change this unfortunately, but I think it's unhelpful that the recruitment industry uses the word introduction and introduce. I mean, I, uh, I, I put it in my company name, right? Because it's yes. that prevalent within the industry. But yes. I think it's an unhelpful description because right. to normal people, right? And I mean non-lawyers and non-recruiters, right? To normal people, introduction has a very common sense meaning, right? So if you're at a dinner party yeah, and I say, hey, Mark, I want to introduce you to James. Yes. Yeah? If you already know James, you're going to say, hey, oh, no, I already know James. No, in- right. no need to introduce right. me. Yes, 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 yes. But in recruitment terms, what we really mean is 
it's almost like we're referring a candidate. Yeah. You know? Because it, 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 this is a trite turn of phrase, right? But Mark, I could introduce you to your mum, right? If you didn't know she was looking for a job, right? And I introduce her to you and then you interview her and hire her because of that, then you slow me a fee, even though it's right. your mum. You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because technically I've, I'm the introducer that has caused the engagement to take place. Yes. Yes, what I mean? yes, yes. No, so, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, a, it's, a, it's gray, right? And that's why there are lawyers in here making money in the gray areas, because that's the nature of it. If it was well, black and white and if it was a scientific outcome every time, yes. an algorithm would do it. You wouldn't need me. For, for me, prevention also, well, there's, there's three keys. Number one, don't accept multi-agency jobs, work mm-hmm. exclusive as, as a minimum and ideally engaged or retained. Yeah. And then you're, you're going to cut down on this issue. Number two is agree the ground rules up front with the client so that you say, look, here's how we work. We're very thorough. We're very, we're effectively doing your first interview work, pre-selecting the candidates for you. We're only going to send them after they've passed our, you know, qualification process. Um, and therefore, we would expect that uh, if you receive the CV from another source, um, then you would, you would, you know, interview the candidate through us. And likewise, on the candidate side, part of that qualification process involves setting ground rules with them and explaining you never send their details anywhere without their approval. Mm-hmm. And, you know, th- that's part of your uh, code of ethics, if you like, or, or rules for working with candidates. And um, what they can do to reciprocate that is if they get approached by another agency about the same job, then they must explain that they've already been introduced or referred and they're not interested in being uh, put forward for that. Yeah. And Now, you mentioned this right to represent. Is that a legal thing or is it just more of a no that's more of an industry phrase right right yeah. to represent right to represent and, and it can sometimes people can come a cropper on this as well right because okay. we, we we had a case uh pre-lockdown um we had a case pre-lockdown where a recruiter was speaking to candidate qualifying yeah. them for a particular role with a particular client during the conversation they're very open about who the client was um yeah. during the conversation it became apparent that the candidate's husband um, uh-huh. had a, a personal relationship with one of the program directors at the yes. end client, yeah, which was cool. You know, that was, that was a benefit, if anything, right? Because mm-hmm. when, mm-hmm. when you're taking out candidates, they're like, oh, they already know people in the business. You know, you can speak to them about them, yes. blah, blah, blah. So that's a great thing, right? That's a brilliant yeah. bit of sales equipment that you've got there. But the problem was for this particular agency that because they were so scared of GDPR, uh, what they had put in, in, in their process was when a candidate confirms they want to be represented to the client, the agency had to send a GDPR notice email mm-hmm. to the candidate. And they, they, as their own process, weren't allowed to introduce that candidate to the client until the candidate had responded and confirmed in writing, yes, please introduce me. Right? Mm-hmm. So in this instance, uh, um, that email was sent. It didn't come back straight away. Uh, mm-hmm. Recruiter chased the candidate. It still didn't come back. Recruiter chased on email and by phone and ultimately got ghosted. Yeah? And we all know what's going on here, right? Yeah. Um, candidate spoken to husband. Husband spoken to mate. Applications happened direct. Uh, recruiters come to us and cried foul and said, yes. you know, we, we, we've been ripped off here. Yeah? And weirdly, in that case, I couldn't do anything for them. Yeah. Because technically, they hadn't actually made an introduction. Yeah. 
Yeah, so even though they caused the engagement to take place, on their own contract, they'd never sent the details or the CV of the candidate. Oh, they've they been kicking themselves. Uh, yeah, understanding the decent fee as well, right? Yeah, uh, I hate being a bearer of bad news, but sometimes it's it's needed. Uh, but now what we've done for them is we tweaked their process. So now instead yes. of sending a GDPR notice that says, "Please, can we have your permission?" Mm-hmm. They send them a note, the GDPR email to say, "Thank you for confirming." Yeah? Ah. Because you could take that consent verbally, right? Thank yes. you for confirming that you are happy for me to do this. Blah yes. blah 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 blah. Then get that intro out. Yes. Get it out. And likewise, Absolutely. another another one where people uh, come up short is when you know when they're speaking to a candidate who's not looking, right? Yeah. So they're not on the market, uh, passive candidate. Therefore, yeah. their CV is unlikely to be up to date. Yeah? yeah. So recruiter speaks to candidate says, "I'm definitely interested in this. Give me a couple of days to get my CV ready." Yeah? And then they wait a couple of days, the CV doesn't come through and they apply direct. Or they yeah. get another agency, another agency hits them up as well and makes the intro before you get in, before you actually get your introduction. Same problem, yes. right? Yeah? So getting, totally. look, mark the card, right? So say to Canada, okay, cool, take a couple of days. I'm going to go and tell the client about you now. Yes. Okay, I'm going to go tell a client about you now. I'm going to give them your LinkedIn profile, you know, whatever it is, your name, a little bit about you, yeah, so we can get their interest and then yes. you get me that CV as quick as you can. Yes, because then you've made point. the introductions made, right? Bam, here's a LinkedIn profile. Yeah, mm-hmm. or here's their name. Here's where they're working. They're out, they're working on getting their CV together. Yeah, can we get some interview times in place now? Yeah, if you want to, if, if when you see the CV, you change your mind, that's fine. Let's cancel the interview, not a problem. But let's get it in the diary. Yeah? Right, just pushing it in the right direction. Absolutely. That's that's brilliant. It's just good recruitment as well, irrespective yeah. of the legal aspects. That's just good recruitment. Absolutely. But you mentioned uh, the case where you know the the problem with the word introduction and the way that it's commonly understood, um, and this happens a lot as well. Is you know people will say, well, you know, who is it that you're going to refer because we might already know them, or even worse, you send it and they go, oh well, we already know Johnny. Um, you know, because and by no, they don't. They, he's never applied for a job. He's not sent a CV, but they know of him in the marketplace just because it's a small world. And but, but this, you is, know. this is this is where your terms are so important, right? Yeah, yeah. Because because the carve out in your terms, you know, should give them a very short window to let you know. But yeah. within like three working days, right? Within three working days or seventy-two hours or whatever it is, you need to tell us if a candidate that we've introduced. Not is known to you, but mm-hmm. is already in process with you. Right. Yeah. No, no. Mm-hmm. I used to work with him 27 years ago. Yes. Right. Or I can find him on LinkedIn, therefore I know him. Yeah. yeah? No, <laughs> they need to actually be in an active process. Right. And part of the term should also, and it's a reasonable request, say, in that eventuality, yeah, you also need to be able to provide us copies of any documentation or emails that we reasonably request of you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because they'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, we've already got him in process. Yeah, cool, not a problem at all. Listen, I need to go to my manager and explain to him that it's not my candidate. So can you just mm-hmm. drop me a copy of the email confirming the interview with the candidate? Because yeah, once I've got that, I can show it to my manager, and then we'll be cool. Yeah? Like At that it. point, clients like, uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> we didn't do it by email. Like, really? 2020, mate. Everybody does everything <laughs> by email. Uh, there's no, you know, you, worst case scenario, right? If we really get down to it, there's going to be an itemized yes. phone bill of a phone call if you say it happened by phone. No, since like 1987, nobody has walked into someone's office and gone, here's my CV and handed it over. You know, it just doesn't happen that way anymore. Yes. There's always an electronic timestamp for everything. 
Great. No, that's it. That's fantastic. Good, good information. Let's move on to detect because this is a difficult one. And uh, I mean, I, I, one specific occasion I can remember, I was six months into my recruiting career and um, I got, I took a job order. It was for a telesales person. I used to recruit salespeople and I was just cutting my teeth. So I was starting, you know, at the bottom and the, the company owner who I was dealing with, he really went out of his way to build rapport with me. He was complimentary. He was, you know, uh, he took lots of time with me on the phone to tell me exactly what he was looking for and so on. So I thought, great, this is a really good client. Uh, and I sent the candidate, uh, he interviewed and then the feedback was, yeah, Stuart, he was a nice guy, but not quite what I'm looking for. He was a little light on experience. So keep looking. Okay. And I thought, okay, fair enough. I'll, I'll go back to the drawing board. And he had me sending lots of candidates to him. Um, anyway, long story short, I didn't end up filling any jobs with them. So moved on. Uh, I did keep in touch with them. I called them, say, three months later. Or I called the switchboard of the company for the, uh, for the owner. Mm-hmm. And the person who answered the phone had a very familiar voice. <laughs> and I said is that you, Stuart? And he was like, there was a pause. And he was like, no. No, it's not me, Stuart. <laughs> What's, who am I speaking to? Uh, uh, John? I was like, hmm. And so anyway, it all came out the wash. We took them to court. I, we did, I did get the fee, but I later found out this guy was doing this to not just me. I ended up speaking to a competitor in a pub and he knew this guy because he'd had the exact same thing happen to him. Yeah. In any case- so detect, how do we find out or make sure that we're not losing any fees? So again, it, it, it all starts with good recruitment, right? Every, okay. Everything starts with good recruitment. Uh, so we, uh, anecdotally, we don't have enough data to say this is accurate across the industry at large, but we're working on the basis that the average agency is losing between about 4 and 7% uh, of their net fee income annually, right? Across a range of fee disputes. So not just like wow. backdoor hires, uh, you know, which is what we call them, um, but also rebate disputes, fee level mm-hmm. disputes, multi-agency disputes, you know, all that sort of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Across the board, that, that's what we're, the, the sort of stat that we're working with, right? And a lot of that uh, is identified by good recruitment, right? So if you spam a CV out to 50,000 hiring managers, and we keep using this number, right? And I know it's extreme and, and, and unlikely, right? But if you spam, spam them out to 50,000, you can't keep tabs on that. No. Right? That's a full-time yeah. job for a team of people to keep tabs yeah. on that, right, yeah. for the next year. It's just not going to happen, right? So if you're limiting the, the amount of places you're sending candidates to, it's automatically easier yeah, to keep an eyeball on it, right? So that's yeah. number one, right? Number two, don't be – and I, I look, there are a lot of generalist agencies out there, right, and they do very good work and they're very good recruiters. But if you are a generalist, likewise, it's going to be much harder, right? It's going to be much harder to keep a tab on your market. If you're working like an insanely narrow niche, you know everybody in your market, right? Mm. So you know all the clients, you know all the hiring managers, you know all the candidates. Anybody moves anywhere, you know about it, Mm. right? And therefore, you're going to know when your people and your candidates are moving somewhere, right? So there's another really good argument for having a very narrow niche in your vertical. Um, Mm -hmm. um, But then it gets old school and it gets creative as well, right? So old school, um, do uh, keep in touch with your candidates. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. It's amazing how many people don't do that. 
You know, yes. so keep in touch with your candidates, keep in touch with your clients, right? Yes. And what what you the, the trap you fell into in that example, Mark, and, mm-hmm. and no doubt you learned a lot since then, right? Because <laughs> you were, it was early days for you. So recruiters have this habit of having like they they um they're sort of blinded to the sides and blinded to the past. They're yes. looking at the, the six inches in front of their nose, right? Yes, definitely. What's happening next? Where's my and, it, and it's KPI driven? Where's right? my next fee coming from? I need to exactly. exactly. But it's all. But it's also it's driven within the industry, right? Yeah. When's your How many jobs have you pulled? How many phone calls have you made? How many CVs have you sent out? How many interviews have you arranged? How many deals? It's so forward focused, right? It's so yeah. forward focused that people don't notice what's passed. So yeah. your example was a. I mean, it's I've heard it a, a million times. Right? If I've heard it once, I've heard it a million times. You know. Uh, and it's because you've moved on to the next one that you think you can close out, right? Yes. And you're not looking Definitely. backwards. You know? yes. so, so just recycling candidates, getting back in touch with candidates. Mm-hmm. I, I, just as recruitment, I think we learn more from the candidates and the jobs that we didn't fill than the ones yes. that we do. Yeah? Yes, yes. So, so that's just good. Uh, it's good business, right? To be identified, why didn't I place that person? Or why didn't I fill that job? Yeah? Or even, you know, at a higher level, Mm-hmm. Why? Why did that recruitment consultant that worked in my business not do well here, but now they've gone to you know Johnny Adams down the road, and at Johnny's agency they're knocking it out of the park, mm-hmm. right? What? What? Why is that happening? You know, and, and that constant yes. sort of revi- revisiting of the past is really healthy for any business owner, right? Absolutely. But the happy coincidence in relation to detecting lost fees is that you notice Stuart's voice on a phone call, mm-hmm. right? Or you know. A simple thing, you know, candidates, when their CVs come in, it's amazing me how few agencies do this, right? Candidate registers their CV with you. It goes onto your CRM. Yeah. So few agencies will then go, oh, hang on. We had this, we had this girl interview two years ago. Let's just compare that CV to where we have the image. Oh, hello. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they end up working in the place we had them interview. So right, few people right. do that. So few people do that. You know, and keep your eye on LinkedIn. Then, then we get to the creative end, right? Mm. Um, phone calls to switchboard. This works. Yep. This, this works better uh, yeah, for contract overstayers. So rather than outright ah. back doors, right? Because the okay. hit rate for outright, outright that back doors are low, right? The odds of it happening are low. Therefore, phony switchboard. The odds are you're going to get her. I don't know who you're talking about. Mind you, it's worth. I mean, I, I do know one person who ha- it's an exercise they do it once a quarter. Is they have someone in their admin team phone the companies of every everywhere they've had an interview and ask for the candidate by name and just see what happens. And she says she gets one or two a year that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the way, which, which makes a lot of sense. And that, that's one of the quite old school methods which you yeah. can use, right? And it, and it works well. There's the others where you know, <laughs> but you can't prove. Uh, yeah, that, that's mm-hmm. where it gets fun. That's where it gets fun. Uh, because some of the old, cool, old school stuff is to send them something in the post. And I'm, you know, signed for, and I'm not talking yes. about an envelope, right? Because if you receive an envelope and it's yeah. registered post and you're avoiding yeah. someone, you don't sign it. Right, 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 right. You don't sign it because it's obvious it's some sort of legal letter or court claim <laughs> or, you know, or it's a bill from HMRC. You're not signing it, right? Yes. Whereas if a box arrives, uh-huh. it's a delivery, right? <laughs> or it's a gift, right? Right, right. Yeah? That gets signed for. And if it's down as, you know, if it's courier delivered, signed only by the recipient, not by the company, but only by the recipient, you've got your first bit of evidence, right? 
Yeah. And they open the box and Barry Cullen pops out. Yeah. Says, oh, 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 I've got oh, you. Oh, oh, there's just an invoice inside. It says, please right. hand this to your manager. <laughs> it doesn't really matter what's inside, right? Um, yeah, but that's a, that's a nice, it's a, it's a nice old school uh, method. Right. It works with, funny. it works with unexpected stuff, right? So flowers, right? Flowers, yeah. box of chocolate. You know, something that's obviously a bottle of wine. People always sign for bottles of wine, right? Uh, <laughs> so any, any of those work really well. Some of the stuff we've done in the past as well, but normally for like exec level, uh, mm-hmm. because it's more expensive, um, is you know, we could put a photographer in someone's, um, in someone's car park outside their office, right? And take a photo of every single person that walks into that office every morning. And every single person that comes in and have a lunchtime and everybody leaves at the end of the day, ideally with the logo of the company in the background, you know, right. and then the consultant can just go, yeah, there she is. Boom. Yeah. So yeah, Has this actually, of, I'm, this sounds like, uh, am like I five stuff? Right? Has yeah, it, yeah, have you yeah, really yeah. done this? Yeah. hundred percent. hundred percent. That's hilarious. You know, but, then, but you only invest that sort of time, money and effort if you already know, right? Yes, you, of course. You, your spider senses are tingling. You're being mm-hmm. ghosted by the candidate. You're being ghosted by the client. Yeah. You, they're not looking at it. Something's up. And you just, when you just know, you know, right? But yeah. when you come to me, I'll say, yeah, yeah, cool. You know, I get it. I'm on your side. Now we need to prove it to a judge. Right. Yeah? So we need to, you know, those dots that you've connected, we need to get the evidence to actually fill them in and make it an actual, yeah. an actual evidence trail. Um, so there's, lo- there's loads of fun and games. Loads of fun <laughs> so, and games you can do. And, and I mean... I have heard, but not uh, investigated more sort of automated or, you know, yeah. technological solutions. Uh, is that something that you're aware of or? Well, yeah, I suppose I should probably have talked about what we do, right? I, yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, that was like a massive open goal that I've just missed entirely by okay, telling you tell about me. all the stuff you can do. So <laughs> we do it, right? So our, our yes. detect solution uh, yes. uh, is, a, is a GDPR compliant audit process for contractor overstays and backdoor hires. Okay. Uh, so it broadly, um, it's a it's a no upfront cost uh, service where recruiters can send us their interview data, send us yeah. their contract finisher data, uh, mm-hmm. and they've they've, they've got a they've got a, uh, a reasonable business interest in this. So it's perfectly compliant. We keep all the data in the UK, right? Uh, we then build some algorithms uh, which can help us identify those individuals and try to connect them to the end client. Out in the world, yeah. Some of it's obvious, like LinkedIn, Zing, Viadeo, you know, news pages of company websites, blog posts, you know, loads of really obvious stuff. There's some, there's some proprietary stuff in there as well, uh, which obviously I won't go into in detail. But there's lots of ways and means of making those connections. And then we've got a team of, uh, of human researchers, again, all UK-based and all working for yeah. us. Um, and they literally go through and qualify those leads. Right? Mm. Uh, and if and if they qualify it and say yes, this looks like a backdoor or contractor overstaying, it then goes to a second level of quality assurance here. Yeah. yeah. So so the algos pick it up, the humans verify it, a manager double verifies it effectively, and then at that point we tell the recruiter, right? Say, you know, right. Johnny ended up at IBM. You know, you yes. you arranged an interview on this day, they arrived on that day. Yes. There's a fee for you potentially. You know, Great. And, and it works on that basis. And Beautiful. It, yeah, it, it's it's smooth. So let's let's talk about recovering then, because um, this is you know as you, you mentioned this earlier in that potentially this is a I mean there's a few different scenarios right but let's imagine a scenario where you up until now have had a good relationship with the client you have ma- made money from them in the past but you know through whatever disorganization miscommunication or whatever. 
uh, they end up hiring someone that you you referred to them. Um, now, what would you advise without going the le- like before you go the legal route? What should we do first? Don't make any assumptions about anything. You know, don't make any assumptions about anything, and be your usual friendly, gregarious self. Don't jump to conclusions. Don't go in making threats. Don't go in accusing anybody of anything. You've done some work. They've got the outcome. They've got the product from that work, right? They've hired the person that you've introduced. It is perfectly reasonable to make an inquiry about how that happened. And it's very telling if you make that inquiry on a really reasonable basis, if the other side ignore you or get very het up about it or get very aggressive, that's a major red flag, right? Because why are they doing that? If you're making such a reasonable inquiry, why are they being so difficult about the issue? You yes. know? And if they're being that difficult about the issue, for me, that's a red flag. It's a good indicator of the fact that actually they might be falling into that category of the ones that have stiffed you on purpose. Yes. Um, you know? So being your best recruiter again, um, in particular, right? sometimes you get these disputes turn up mid-process. Uh-huh. Yeah? So you might have introduced a candidate. and You might even have them at first stage interview, right? Uh, and then at some point, there becomes a dispute over the fee during that process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So at that point, you know, be the best recruiter you can ever be with the candidate. Yeah. For a few reasons. Firstly, you want them to get the right job, right? Yeah. They're they're a valuable commodity in your market, right? So if you automatically stop working with them because they've gone direct or because another agency is involved, you've now lost the opportunity of placing them anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately, the best way to resolve this fee dispute is by getting them a different job. Right? Right, if you get them a course. different job, there's no fee dispute anymore. Yes. Yeah. So that's one thing, right? Uh, the second thing is, if you're doing the best recruitment you can for that candidate, irrespective of the fee dispute, mm-hmm. you've now got an ambassador. Right? You've got a candidate that's right. on your side. Yeah? Yes, yes. Because, because you, Mark, are looking after me because you want me to get the job, not because you want to get paid. Yeah? Mm-hmm. So you've got an ambassador. Somebody that's more likely to shout for you at the client end. Yeah? Yes. But you've also got a spy. Right? Whether they know it or not, they're giving you information. Yeah. Right? My next interview is on this day. My next interview is at this time. Yeah. So they're giving you information and filling in the gaps that you often wouldn't know if you sort of got out of touch with them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then, really importantly as well, you can build an evidence trail. Right. Mm-hmm. So client says, you know, we found them ourselves. We're not going to work with you on this candidate. Yeah. You're going to, that's a closed door, right? You're not going to be able to persuade the client to change their mind. Right. But if you were the candidate side, are showing, doing all the steps you would usually do with a candidate, you know, prepping them for interviews, making sure they've got market intel on the client, on who they're seeing, you know, confirming everything for them, giving them as much support as possible. And when I get them in front of, get that client in front of a judge 15 months later, uh, I say to the judge, this is all the work we did, right? Mm. You won't be surprised to learn that, you know, gray-haired old men and women as judges, right? And that's the, that's the caricatured version of it, right? <laughs> Their starting point isn't, um, oh, recruiters are lovely. We need to do what we can to make sure you get paid. Yeah? Right. Their, their starting point is the assumption that they're, you know, uh, the, the, the caricature of a recruiter, right? Slick back hair, shiny suit, no shoes, no socks, um, you know, <laughs> and, and just have to make money and don't care about anybody, right? That's, that's the caricature, caricature they've got in their head, right? And then the other part of it is, you know, that aspect of the, the judge saying, well, you didn't send a CV. Why should you be getting 12,000 pounds? You mm. didn't arrange any of the interviews. You didn't do any of the other stuff, right? Mm. The fact of the matter is, the reason you didn't do that is because the client cut you out of it. Yes. Yeah? But 
it's really nice to be able to say to a judge, look, the client cut us out on this day. So we couldn't mm -hmm. do anything else for the client. But nonetheless, we still did all this with the candidate. Look, here's mm -hmm. all the calls we made, all the emails we sent, all the arrangements. So we still caused this to happen just because mm -hmm. the client cut us out. Do you see what I mean? So, that's, so, so it's an evidence building process Brilliant. as well. You know? yes. So that's really good. Client side, yeah, don't fall out with them. Yeah, don't fall out with them. I say this time and time again. It is far too easy to push the big red nuclear button and go straight to threats, right? Yeah. But once you've done that, it's almost impossible to de-escalate. Yeah. So if you immediately pick up the phone to the client and accuse them of thieving, accuse them of stealing, and say, I'm sending you an invoice, I'm going to sue you in seven days, yeah, all that's going to happen is you've lost the client, right? So you're never going to do business with them again. Right? <laughs> some, some are going to think that's probably a good thing because if they're going to nick off you, you don't want to work with right. them anywhere. That's fine. Sure. I get that. I get that, right? But you're definitely not going to be able to work with them again. Yeah? You've just threatened court action. So what are they going to do? They're going to go and get their lawyers involved. Right? So now you're not dealing with a, a hiring manager anymore. You're dealing with a lawyer whose job it is to defend and job it is to make it difficult for you to get paid. Yeah? Or yes. HR or procurement or whoever it is. Right? So that's going to happen. They're also going to close up. Right? So they're not going to give you any more information. Yeah? So you're not going to be able to persuade them. You're not going to be able to part that process. Mm. Yeah? Whereas if you have a friendly approach, and, and even when I get involved, we have a fairly friendly approach. We're quite conciliatory. Even when we're coming out in the open and, uh, and contacting a client, often our first email to the client is, hey, look, you've had a falling out with the recruiter. We get it. Can we have a call? Let's just chat it through. Yeah? Rather mm. than, you know, here's a 17-page letter explaining what, what we're going to do to you and why and how. Uh, yes. You know, we're going to burn down your whole business. Yeah? There's no <laughs> need for that. There's no need for that. Let's just have a friendly conversation. Yeah? Let's figure out where the issues are Right? Because often, in fact, I get on the phone to them and they say, hey, look, we're happy to pay the fee. They've just got the invoice for the wrong amount. Yes. Well, actually, they, they, we just need a PO. They haven't got a PO. They get a PO. And then I say, cool, how do we get the PO? You know, those two, but if you go straight into full double barrel sort of shotgun in the back routine, you ain't ever coming back from that. For sure. For sure. Absolutely. So, well, that listen, that's all awesome advice, Barry. And I, uh, this is Definitely interesting stuff because everybody will have had numerous experiences involving one of these three, uh, if not multiple, all three. Um, one more thing I wanted to ask you is uh, more and more I'm seeing clients doing business internationally. So, you know, they might be based in the UK or but placing someone in the States or vice versa, someone in the States placing someone in, you know, Asia. And you know, obviously that complicates things from a legal perspective because realistically, I, I'm not going to fly to Japan to settle a fee dispute, right? That's just, yeah. I mean, it's well, not. On, on, it depends where the decimal place is, right? <laughs> well, I suppose, yeah. If it was a million pound placement, then sure. Yeah, then I'll settle my but, um, You know, is there any, um, would you approach those scenarios differently or would you just go use your same legal process be a good recruit, be the best recruiter you can be, make sure everyone has this, you know, your managing expectations from the start, you're sending your terms of business, even though they may not be enforceable. Is there anything else that people should do? Well, yeah, primarily everything we've said about good recruitment and running a good business still works, yeah. right? Internationally, it still works. Um, legally, it does raise potentially some more hurdles, right? Yeah. Uh, and the first question I always have to ask is which terms of business apply? And in those mm. terms of business, what's the jurisdiction? Yeah. Mm. So if it's if it's a UK recruiter hiring somebody in uh, for somebody in Germany, mm -hmm. and it's on the UK recruiter's terms, normally the terms will say English and Welsh law. Yeah? Yes. And the courts of England and Wales, 
Okay. So mm-hmm. in those scenarios, in the event that we do get into a dispute, yeah, it's not you getting on a plane, it's them getting on a plane to England. Because okay. the fight the fight happens in England, right? Yes. The court case happens in England. Yeah. So they're the ones that have to travel. It's actually mm-hmm. it's sometimes it's actually massively helpful, particularly on a lower level fee dispute. Right. Because a lower level fee dispute, once they come to realize, oh what, there's gonna be like three hearings for this. Yeah. And we've got to get on a plane to England to have them every time. Mm. Let's just cut a deal. It's not worth the hassle. Yeah. Yeah. You know? yeah. So actually, there could be some major advantages there. You know, okay. Major advantages. Um, where it gets even, so on the international piece, where it gets really challenging is that when you don't send your terms at all, right? And it happens, right? For whatever mm. reason, it happens. You don't send terms or you don't, you send terms and, and you have a negotiation and ultimately you don't agree anything. Right, um, mm. but you but you've made an introduction. So these are the really like grey nitty gritty ones, right? And um, so if your if your English and Welsh terms don't apply, yeah, the first question that a court has to ask itself is, does this court have jurisdiction over this dispute? Right. Mm. I'll try not to get too legalistic on this, but <laughs> what 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 we end up having to do is a is a is an analysis of the facts and the evidence to decide what's called the nexus of the deal, right? Okay. So what's the nexus or the center point of the deal, right? So uh, for, the recu- for the UK recruiter, we would argue yeah, the recruitment company's in England. Mm-hmm. Yeah? The recruiter doing the work was in England. The services were provided from England. The invoice was raised in England. Yeah? Therefore, England should have jurisdiction. Yeah? So the English court should deal with this. But the other side, the end client, so in this side, the defendant would say, well, hang on a second. We're in Germany. Mm. Yeah? The job's in Germany. The candidates in Germany, all the mm. interviews took place in Germany. And if anybody pays anything, it's coming from Germany. So right. actually, Germany should have jurisdiction. Yeah? And all you do, uh, irrespective, you've just put a massive hurdle in your own way yeah? because we're not even arguing over the case yet. We're spending months arguing over which court has jurisdiction. Right? And that becomes messy. Right? And yeah. you, just, you don't want a mess. If you ever hear a lawyer say, well, that's interesting. Right? Uh, <laughs> it's almost the worst word a lawyer can use when they're analyzing your case. That's interesting because basically what it means is that's expensive and I don't know what the answer is going to be at the end of this. <laughs> yeah. Never, if, if a lawyer says it's interesting, yeah, that's just a nightmare. We don't want interesting. We want vanilla, plain, boring, and obvious. Hilarious. That's yeah. amazing. Thank you. <laughs> Barry, is there anything else you wanted to cover today? I think I've got all my questions answered. Just like I've got a major uh, alert, sort of like a, an, an alarm bell, if you will. Uh, yes. Clack, clacks and sound now. Um, I'm not going to name the companies now okay. uh, because we're quite early in our investigation still. Uh, <laughs> but we are hearing significant numbers of recruiters are falling for a current payroll scam. Right? Mm. Uh, the the payroll, the companies involved uh, appear so far to be based predominantly out of the Midlands in England. Uh, so okay. we're talking sort of Birmingham and Coventry area. Right. Um, it's an age-old scam. It's been around since the dawn of recruitment. Uh, but for anyone that doesn't know how it works, uh, your sales law gets a phone call. Um, it's a client, uh, not one of your existing clients, but a company calling in with an inquiry. And the inquiry basically goes like this. Hey, we've got a couple of project managers that we've hired. We need someone to payroll them for us. Would you, would you be happy to do that? And the consultant's mm-hmm. like, Free deals. This is amazing. Nice. Great. Free deals. Happy days. Let's go for it. Right. Uh, and they, and, and they, they write it up. Yeah. They write it up. Typically the day rates are somewhere between sort of like 300, 350, 450, maybe as much as 500 pounds a day to the project managers. Yeah. So it's, 
it's enough to make it look like a good deal, but not so yeah. expensive that it causes any alarm bells. Uh, uh, and then they, so they've already worked two weeks for us. So can you just, can you payroll their first two weeks as well? Yeah, of course we can. Right. So the moment the deal is signed, uh, you pay, you pay for the last two weeks worth of this person, these people's work. And it's normally at least two people they're placing with you. Right. Mm-hmm. So let's call it, let's call it 400 pounds a day times two. Mm-hmm. So that's 800 pounds a day. They've already worked two weeks. Right. So that's 10 days of work. So that's 8,000 pounds that you're paying mm-hmm. out straight away. Yeah. Okay. Then you're paying out another 16,000 pounds over the next four weeks. Then you raise your first invoice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's due in 30 days. So by that point, you're 10 weeks in of supplying these contractors to this client before your first invoice even falls due. Mm-hmm. Right? And by the time anybody raises a real alarm bell, you're probably another two to four weeks in. So you could be like 12 to 14 weeks deep in paying 800 pounds to pay out before anybody pulls, pulls the credit and says, stop supplying these people. Yikes. Yeah? Yeah? And even if you're invoice financing that or factoring it, ultimately you've got a PG on the deal, so you're going to have to pay that money back to the bank eventually, right? Yes. And all on the basis that your salesperson was like, yay, two free deals. Right? It's very unusual, it happens, right? It's very unusual for a cold client to phone in and basically gimme you two deals. Right? It's right. an old adage, but it's true. If it smells too good to be true, it's too good to be true. Okay? <laughs> right, right, right. So check your clients, due diligence them, make sure you're credit checking them. If these sorts of phone calls coming in, do deep, deep dives. Phone me, right? I'll tell you if they're scammers, right? Because yes. I'll know. Right? It's a massive alarm bell, okay? Because we're seeing loads of people. We're doing an investigation on it now. Mark, I don't know whether you're able, when, when this gets out, wherever it goes out, to do a link uh, to, to uh, our investigation. Uh, because yes. we're asking recruiters that have, been, that have either seen it or that have fallen foul of it to get in yes. touch with us. Um, it's my, it, I'm on a vendetta against these particular people. Recruitment's difficult enough without scammers coming along and actually taking money out of recruiters' pockets. Uh, no kidding. So I'm, going, I'm going off on a little bit of a pro bono jaunt here. Um, I, I want this to end with the, the directors of those companies uh, handing over a lot of money first uh, and then not having to worry about money because hopefully they'll be in Her Majesty's bed and breakfast uh, for a few years at the end of it. Absolutely. Uh, got, yeah. So that, that's my closer, if you will. Yeah. Well, that. listen, this will probably come out in three or four weeks, Barry. And yeah, cool. uh, so in between then, let's keep in touch and I'll, whatever, you know, you've put together, I'll provide a link uh, in the show notes. So, hey, one more, one more thing on a, on a personal note. I, I read uh, in the notes that you sent me that you did a triathlon a couple of years ago. What, <laughs> yeah, what inspired ago that? <laughs> uh, it was a drunken bet. All these things start with a drunken bet. Uh, <laughs> so uh, Tom, uh, Tom Glanfield, uh, CEO at LHI Group, uh, he'd done a half Ironman uh, okay. at one point. Um, and do you remember back in the day when people had iPhones, right? How, how did you know somebody had an iPhone when they first came out? They told you about it, right? And they wouldn't stop yeah. talking to you about it. Tom was a bit like that with the half Ironman thing. So I, so I said to him, well, it was only a half. Uh, and he, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so it very quickly devolved from me winding him up about only being a half to me signing up to a full Ironman. Um, wow. Anyone, anyone else know it? That's like a two and a half mile open water swim, 112 yes. mile bike ride, and then a marathon. And yeah, any sporting yeah. event which ends with and then a marathon, you know it's tough, right? Right. Um, and I know also when I signed up to this, I didn't know how to swim, uh, so I had to learn how to swim. No way! Well. Yeah, 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 that's crazy. Yeah. Well, you've just blown up my excuse because uh, I have started running recently, right. and I'm starting to, you know, uh, enjoy that. I hated it at first. I'm now starting to enjoy it. 
Um, but I am a terrible swimmer. Like my kids all swim way better than, than I do. Yeah. And I'm thinking, well, no triathlons in my uh, future. So w- you literally had to learn to swim in order to yeah. do this. Yeah. Ten, ten weeks before Ironman, I got dragged out of the sea uh, or, or by Brighton Pier uh, by lifeguards uh, because I was trying to do a, a one and a half kilometer swim. Uh, with Tom and others from the, the LHI uh, team that were doing the Ironman together, I got dragged out by lifeguards because they thought I was going to die. Uh, oh my God. And then 10 weeks later, I had to do a two and a half mile swim. So I basically, my real learning happened in that final 10 weeks. That's crazy, Barry. You <laughs> yeah, obviously yeah. survived. How, how did you pull that off? I'm, mine's blown uh, on that. I, I threw money at the problem and got a, a personal one-to-one swimming coach. Yeah. I went yeah. to see him twice a week for 10 weeks. Uh, and Mike, he was brilliant. But what he said at the start was, you haven't, Barry, you've not given me enough time. He said, the only thing I can guarantee you is I will give you the confidence to get to the start line. Right? That's all I can guarantee. It's up to you to finish nice. it. Yeah, which nice. I quite liked. Yeah, everyone Hilarious. likes a challenge, right? Well, listen, I have a client I'm working with right now who is a uh, Ironman you know, regular Ironman uh, athlete called Lee Charles. So shout out to Lee, but he, he trains out, like he's designed his recruitment business around his training because he's, I mean, he's training like a serious athlete every single week. Um, it's an enormous commitment. Yeah. It's huge. So that, that final three months before I, man, I was doing between 17 and 20 hours of training a week. Okay. I, I live down in Brighton while well, I've been home now, but okay. um, I would get the train back from the city and yeah. anyone that knows the train line, I would get off at Hassocks or I would get off at Burgess Hill, which is quite a few stops short of Brighton. And then I would w- run through the countryside home. I'd literally <laughs> just, that was the only way I could get enough running time in. I'd literally get off the train a few stops early and run the rest of the way um, and Hilarious. keep running until my feet got wet in the sea. And then um, that was it done. Yeah. It almost made my life, if I'm honest with you. <laughs> Well, Barry, listen, uh, I've really enjoyed this. It was fun. Let's do it again sometime. Awesome. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure, Barry. See ya. Take care. Thank you for listening to The Resilient Recruiter. I know how busy recruiters are, so I'm honored that you're investing this time with me each week. I don't take your attention for granted. That's why I'm going all out to deliver value for you here. Real insights you can apply to improve your business. And if you really want to help me to reach a wider audience and impact more people, please consider leaving the show a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you leave me a review, please reach out and let me know so I can thank you personally. Please hit the subscribe button and I'll see you next time.